Dan Mack is back, and this year she has sought out the best customer-centric thought leaders from around the world. Are you after practical, accessible, and customer-centric marketing? You're in the right place. Sit back and enjoy Dan's small business podcast. For more information, go to www.daniellemckinnis.com or visit www.mckinnismarketing.com.au. You're doing in, in your business. I've had a bit of a look at what you're doing, but it sounds really interesting. So I've been in, uh, well, I've been in customer experience for quite a, few, quite a while, about 13, 14 years, one way or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in 2000 when it was not very well known at all. <laughs> Um, it was quite a hard sell, to be honest. Um, but now, it's yeah, as you say, it's kind of all the buzz. Um, most of my work, it kind of falls. I don't really specialize in any particular industry, but the truth is that the industries that are most interested in it are uh, retail, simply because they get consumer research and have done for a long time. So that, that's well established in retail, mm-hmm. which makes them quite demanding clients, actually, but that's fine. Um, um, in, I find it in leisure uh, and transport uh, where, the, so for example, in transport, the passenger experience, mm. they are a lot of transport companies. The airlines are a bit better established, but the bus companies, the rail companies, they are still pretty much getting people from A to B. They... they I came across a rail company that described its passengers as uh, freeloading freight, <laughs> uh, which I thought just just uh, encapsulated the way they Think just did them. not get. They just did not get the concept of a passenger as someone who should be uh, understood. Um, uh, I do a lot of work in healthcare. Healthcare is probably my biggest sector now. Um, patient centricity mm. is huge. Uh, across the globe and here in the UK it's becoming a really big issue um, politically as well as uh, from a healthcare perspective so I do quite a lot of work with uh, drug companies and with our own state healthcare system the NHS mm-hmm. um, but also a lot with small businesses startups who want to build customer experience into their proposition from the ground up mm-hmm. um, yeah small businesses who want to build a niche where the the intimacy of their smaller group of customers is perhaps better than a large corporate. So it, it, it kind of crops up all over the place. And uh, for me, the, 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 the core of my work is, so how do, you, how do you capture it? How do you structure something that is actually quite unstructured? Mm. Um, so customer experience data is hard to get your arms around. Uh, it's everywhere. It's in social media. It's you know, but the, the easiest way to see it is to go with people and you know, but it's trying to understand what the experience is of uh, uh, of a restaurant chain. You need to be going to the restaurant chain with the customers, and mm. they just give you a running commentary of what they're thinking. And I particularly like that approach because when you come back and talk to them afterwards, the difference between what they say they did and what they actually did can be quite different, which does highlight the need for, I think, a more uh, ethnographic approach mm. because uh, the, the, what goes on in the subconscious of customers is not always what they realize is going on. So, mm. um, so it's a whole load of different data sets that need to be kind of integrated together and you end up with something that, that represents what the customer wants. So um, you've sort of gone through some of the, the, 
the segments that you're looking after and I guess what I'm taking from what you said is that the research that you do is a little bit more hands-on following what the customer's experience actually is mm -hmm. because a lot of the um, I guess thought leaders that I've spoken to in service design seem to be mapping that out with a group of people but it seems largely still assumption based it's taking the best guess and I, I asked a few of them well, why don't you actually get the customer in that customer experience mapping exercise and they sort of had said to me well that's the next step or we're doing that yeah that's something we're thinking about right but what I'm hearing from you is yeah like there's nothing like the first-hand data to shape there, there isn't and, and, and one of the things I really dislike about some of the leading service design thinkers who have some fantastic methodology, yeah. which I'm very impressed with. Yeah. But the thing I don't like about it is it's usually done in a artificial or a sterile environment. Mm. So even when they are doing things like user design for a website, mm. and they get the users in, they sit them down in front of a, of a screen, it's usually in a user lab mm. where they can track everything, and it's completely artificial. Whereas when you do, when I do that, when I do, for example, watching people shop online um, to buy stuff for their home or their family or whatever. Mm. And I do it in their house, mm. on their machine. And you see how when in the real world they're, they're about to buy something when the dog runs into the room or the baby starts crying or just an email appears and they get distracted because that's the real world. Mm. And that should be built into the user experience. Mm. But in, in, in service design companies, they don't do that. They, ethnographic approach is a very limited, uh, almost an afterthought. And my view is that it should be the other way around. The vast majority of it should be the user experience with all the overlapping other stuff that goes on in their lives. You see this in, in healthcare. It's a great example. When they go to the hospital, the doctor is usually the only person who calls them a patient. Mm. So everybody else, I'm mum, dad, a friend, or whatever, they don't call themselves patients except when they're in a clinical environment. Mm. So uh, why, would you, why would you do patient research in a clinical environment where you force them into a persona of you're a patient? Mm. And in fact, in our country, you have a patient number attached. If you haven't got your patient number, it slows the process down, which is very inconvenient for us in healthcare. So, you know, mm. when my view is, most of the time, 95% of the time, you're not a patient, you're you, and you're an expert in being you, and let's start with that, and let's hear that story, and maybe we'll get to talk about your cancer treatment later on today, but to be honest, I'm more interested in how you're coping with your life with this condition, and I find you get a much more real set of data about patient experience than if you just frame it in let's look at the clinical journey from diagnosis to first treatment to second treatment and so on. Mm. Yeah, I read one of your articles which was sort of alluding to that in that, yeah, the real data as opposed to what, what could be happening in the real environment. So I, I appreciate that. How much do you think your work in being good at what you do is comes from, you know, insight or empathy or... Is it just observation? Like, do you need a bit of both? Um, uh, I think some of it is attitudinal. I think you need one needs to train yourself to say all of the clues that I'm hearing. You know, I come from a, 
a more classical research training where I've got a discussion guide and I really want to hear about the, the 10 issues on my discussion guide. So when they, the focus group drifts off topic, you bring them back to the 10 questions pretty quick because mm-hmm. you know the clients behind the glass want you to do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas I try to train myself to say that everything they're saying here could be a useful clue, mm-hmm. but I don't know at this point in time. So I don't want to shut you up just because you're talking about your family mm-hmm. because it may be that you're going to go on to say, my family provides the kind of support for my needs that I wish the social services could provide, but they don't. So I rely on my mum. Mm. And that clue can give you some really useful stuff, but you didn't know they were going to say that. So if you shut them up as soon as they start to drift off topic. So I think one of the things is an attitudinal concept for yourself to say, don't force them into a preconceived set of topics mm. that I think is what the issue is all about. Let's, let's focus on them. Mm. That's one thing, um, but I did need some training for that. I, I, uh, I, I'm too much of a traditional researcher to just be able to switch into that mode. So I did some training at a, on a university course, actually, to help me get there. And I send all the people I use in field work. I always send them all on that course too, um, uh, to, so that a so that we're all on the same. Uh, page, but also because I think they'll probably benefit from it as well. Mm. So I think that that, that really does help. Um, mm. uh, having said that, I think a background in, in traditional research is handy because uh, when you gather all these ethnographic clues or whatever, other, most of the clients will say to me, fine, you've spoken to 30 people, but I need you to speak to a thousand people so that I can go to the board and say, I want to build a business case. And look, we've got a thousand people in our sample and we've split it by first-time shoppers and uh, loyalty card holders and you can see the differences and the, and the similarities. And mm. So a researcher background teaches you that you need robust um, techniques to be able to prove your case. Mm. So it's a bit of a blend of the two and I'm more traditionally, I'm more in the latter, so I've had to kind of work on the, the former bit to get me to value them equally, really. Mm. Do you think that, why do you think, I don't know, I find this a lot, that if I look at the consumer market, they seem closer to the customer. Mm -hmm. Even just with their communication, you know, be it website or, they seem more to be talking to me and they seem more to understand my experience. This is very general. But when I look at a B2B or a service-based business, it still seems largely they're talking about themselves. It seems like a bigger disconnect. And I just wonder if there's much to be learned. Like I keep always referring back to that consumer market for lessons that I can apply to business to businesses because I largely mm. work with service businesses. And I just wondered what you thought about that because you've mentioned even retail's more responsive to this sort of, you know, in touch with the, the buyer's um, research and, and feedback. Yeah. Um. I think, I think it's true that, that retail and, and other consumer businesses are more in tune with it. I use it with B2B at the very least because it's something that everyone in that business can understand. They know what it's like to be a customer. Mm. So they can relate to it. Mm. Uh, whether they're willing to apply it in their own business is another issue. Mm. And I'm sure you found this. Yeah. Um, so it's harder, I think, with B2B. Yeah. Um, but the, I'll give you my, my favorite tip, which I learned 
for how to persuade B2B uh, companies that this is worth doing, is I say to them, okay, if, if at a starting point, is they, they're a building firm and all of their um, oh, customers are... I've got one of these. You've got one of these, <laughs> yeah. okay. So, so I spoke to a, a building firm and they're really for the trade. You know, most of the gear customers are other builders. Okay. Small sole traders or, or, or a larger firm. And they said, oh, look, all they care about is price, availability, access. They don't care about the soft, fluffy stuff. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, so what about thinking about it from their customers' perspective? So not your customers, your direct business customers. But if you keep going down the line, someone has a consumer as their customer. Someone wants to buy that house or they are paying that tradesman to repair their windows. Mm-hmm. If you can give them insight into what their customers value, that can help you improve your business proposition to win more business. Mm. And all of a sudden, they're thinking, oh, yeah, I'd love to win more market share. Uh, So that would be great. And it suddenly made them think, actually, that does make a difference. Mm. And I get that. So I'm, and it was a bit of a, just a mind shift where, and I find that works quite well with a number of different uh, companies. Mm. that you need to maybe take them one or two levels down the chain to get to the point where their customers, who they would love to think they give great customer service to, mm. to what degree are they understanding that? And then you can work back to, okay, mm. so let's think about businesses. Yeah, make it um, for that, them. That, that works quite well. Oh, that's a good one to know. How do you see, uh, and you had this in one of the um, articles I was reading, um, you know, all the different channels well, two questions really. All the different channels that we now have as customers to navigate this journey in terms of, I feel like I've got a lot of information if I want to go and buy a car and probably yep. more than the person in the, in the sale yard um, because I've looked at reviews and I, I know what it's worth and I'm going in there from a position of at least some knowledge whereas five years ago I wouldn't have had a clue. How does... How does that change the journey in terms of my position as a customer in the world that we're in now? That's one question. And the other question I've got is um, the use of, and and you had some of this research, in the use of different groups of personas born at different times. So, for example, a a Generation X experiences to my mum's experience. And, And I think I read somewhere in one of the reports, Forrester, I think it was, that you know, in 2025, you know, 70% of the population that are employed are going to be this Gen X. So I'm just wondering about that big demographic landscape as well. So one is the world that we're living in, I guess, and the demographics behind that changing it. Is there any of that that can be applied just generally or do you always have to bring it back to that one individual? Um, Well, a few things on that, I guess. One is on the... On the channels and the, the, the much greater availability of insight and data for customers than they ever used to have, like buying a car. Quite common now where the customer knows just as much as the salesman about the car because he's done his homework. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that does change the customer experience from I'm here to buy a car and this guy's here to sell me a car. I think it changes it to, certainly from a sales perspective, he become, should become more of a guide, more suitability, more inside track. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's there simply to help, whereas not to persuade, 
It's simply to provide options. It's more like, uh, the way I try and think of it, it's more like a concierge at a hotel. Mm. Uh, he doesn't sell you stuff, but he's got tons of knowledge, and a lot of his knowledge is local stuff. That mm. it's very hard to know unless you really live, a work, live and work around this hotel. But you kind of trust him, because he's got no particular reason, you'd hope, for sending you to one place or another. Mm. And that, So I think that changes the relationship between buyer and seller. And I think you see that online with user reviews and, and a whole raft of other data. So I think that is only going to increase um, to the point at which you should encourage people to make their own decision, but you just give them the best data available. Mm. Uh, as far as the, the demographic uh, question you, you raised, which is a really good point, and it's a, it's a tough one because there's some generic data out there which shows that at a population basis that, yes, older people are getting more online than ever before, and so, you know, let's give them online propositions. But when you talk to small cohorts of people, you can find some very online savvy people, and you can find some people who don't own a computer and refuse to own a computer. Mm. So I think it's dangerous to run too much with generic uh, assumptions about generations. Mm. But having said that, uh, there are some, I think, some things that are more at the younger end than the older end. I think the younger, the younger generations are much more consistent in, their, in the, the characteristics of their generation than the older ones are. The older ones, some are going to run with the new stuff and some are going to stay in their old ways. But for a young person today to turn their back on, in, on the digital world is extremely difficult mm. and socially quite limiting. Mm. Um, so it's much more consistent at the younger end. And certainly you see today's crowd of graduate trainees. I look at the graduates coming into big corporates now, those lucky enough to get a job. Um, and they are much more savvy in terms of social relationships, how to build networks, wanting to learn, genuinely wanting to learn rather than necessarily wanting to get on in my job. Mm. Actually mm -hmm. genuinely enjoy the learning uh, dynamic. Yeah. And indeed learning with others rather than just necessarily learning for myself. Mm. And that sort of stuff I think is, is pretty consistent across nations uh, and across different types of that generation. Even the less well-educated ones still have mobile phones. They still love Facebook. You know, no matter how much money you have or how little money you have, you can still get to learn to love that stuff. They still play games, video games. and So, so I think that side of thing is very dangerous for a brand to ignore today from a customer experience point of view. Mm. So I, I, tend to, I tend to have more faith in the generic stuff at the younger end, whereas the older ones I want to know specific cohorts mm. for that brand. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Do you think, you, and we, we sort of spoke about this at the start, but do you think that, um, you know, I've, I've read a lot about this is the age of the customer and, you know, we feel this groundswell around customer experience. Do you think there'll, there'll be, can you envisage that this phase, if you like, lasting for a while or, or can you see it sort of being torpedoed again by something else? Because I guess what I've sort of seen is, you know, industrial age or whatever and then we've had IT for a big period of time and now it feels like the customer era we're really wholly in that, you know, and you can see that people enjoy that control over their life and that empowerment. 
from the you know from my seven year old who's using the iPad and the phone and doing Minecraft all at the same time to you know his nan who's just learning how to text, but yeah. they feel in control more than, than they did with technology. I don't know if it's making them. I feel like it's. I thought I feel like we're going back to now humanizing that journey again. That's what I feel like, and I feel like we've sort of maybe it just. Maybe there's just a point in time when we actually need to get back to that social fabric that used to be there. I don't know. But I'm just sort of wondering if you feel that too and what you think's next or is there a next or how long does this last? Uh, oh, wow. That's, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, debate. Um, I think aspects of the, of the kind of customer revolution is here to stay. And one of them I've already mentioned is the transparency of life with digital data there forever. I can't see you can put the, the, the genie back in the bottle mm. for that. No. Um, and I think broadly that's a good thing. Um, however, the one area that I think may be ready for a uh, next wave or a flip is we're still only, you know, I remember being wowed by the fact that the internet even existed 15, 20 years ago. In terms of the sort of social media stuff, one forgets it's only about five, six years old, really, at any scale. So I think there's going to be a tipping point, and we're probably, you know, maybe up to a decade away from it, where we get to wash out and see, well, is all of this 24-7 online living that we do now in the, in the Western world, is that actually good for us or not? And I think there may be the, a, a realization at some point that, it's a bit of a zero-sum game. There are still only 24 hours in the day. Whether you're online or not, you can't extend the day. <laughs> what you can do is you can fill it up with messages, things to do, so-called multitasking, which I don't really believe in. Um, uh, I just believe in task switching, but that's another issue. Um, so there may, come, there may come a point where the, we, as a community or as a, as a certain society, we say, Actually, I'm not sure we're any better off after all. So I think we might see a, a kind of a leveling off, a plateauing, and maybe a slight dip if you graphed it in terms of how much I'm prepared to be continually multitasking, interrupted. I can see that becoming too much. And you, this idea of Google Glass, where you, 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 are, you can walk around and see personalized messages being fed to you from any number of providers as you walk down the street, I personally don't, that, that, that to me starts to, to point towards the tipping point that says there comes a point where there is too much data mm. and I just want to take these glasses off. Mm. And, I, and I, there are environments, I think, where you see, for example, on airplanes where the idea of um, being able to talk on your mobile phone, uh, which is now technically possible, the passengers actually, when polled, rejected it mm. because they said actually there is still a strange thing that I quite like the peace and quiet and cut-offness of being on a plane for a while. I still mm. want to be able to watch a movie, but I kind of do that at a personal level now, mm. and I would still like to be able to go to sleep. So I think that's a good example of there are some environments where actually you can get too much of a good thing, and, and I, I don't think there'll be enough proof of that for a few years yet. Um, but there are certain environments uh, where... 
even now, uh, certain entertainment environments where they're beginning to say, actually, we want a bit more quiet time, we want a bit more reflective time. You know, galleries, art galleries and museums um, is, a, is an interesting environment to explore this. There's so much digital advancement now that can tell you and you can use your mobile phone to overlay data. Mm. Uh, they just relax the rules in, uh, I think it's the Louvre in Paris, so that you're allowed to take photos of art now. You never used to be able to for copyright reasons. But now they're thinking, well, if it, if it engages you to take a photo, go home, play around with it, share it with your friends, I'm into art now, that's a good thing. Um, but there comes a point where I think, actually, does anybody go to a gallery now and just look at the art <laughs> and just think about what that means? And I think there's, again, a tipping point that says that are we actually gaining from this digital environment or not? So I think that somewhere along the line, it's early days, but somewhere along the line there might be a bit of a change there. Yeah, it's a really interesting scenario because, I mean, just taking my son, for example, he's he's into Minecraft and... Um, mm -hmm. And what's, what's Minecraft? So Minecraft is basically a, a, an app that you build worlds. So it's like Lego for kids, but it's digital. Okay. Um, and, and that's good in some ways, but, you know, then when he goes to his friend's house, his friend and he can be in the same world, so they can be building together and collaborating, which is kind of nice. But where it sort of reaches the tipping point is where, you know, you're reading something about kids being on these devices forever and then, you know, them getting really hunched over and their shoulders and actually, you know, affecting their physique to right. the point at which you have to make them lie in their bed with their head back to get their <laughs> neck back in the right position so that they don't, you know, have some physical disability for a few hours. So it's just it's just such a different landscape, you know. That I remember just going out and, and kicking a football around or, you know, <laughs> yep. we're making fun of it. But I think the really interesting thing that you brought up for me is, um, is that collaboration or that opportunity to share. I think that that's a really, really interesting thing. And particularly with reviews, I think we're still seeking out, out peers' opinions and and that collaboration in terms of taking learning, not just me but beyond me, I think is really interesting as well. So, yeah, that will be interesting to see where that, that goes to. You mentioned just before... Um, when you were working with startups that they're trying to actually test or explore that customer mapping or that customer experience from the start and then build out mm. from that, which I think is really interesting. But I was also wondering how true or how easy it is to stay committed to the why, you know, the why of your business, the why that you got into business for in the first place. And I think that you had in one of the articles I was just reading um, about um, there were two things in this article which was really good. I'll actually put a, a link to it um, that you wrote, which was um, basically this work customer workbook that you've done on how to make a business yeah. um, customer centric, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I really liked about it was you gave a couple of examples of businesses that. Um, that was interesting. I'll just try and bring it up. One of them was Amazon and you were talking about how they had also made the marketplace open with this marketplace initiative. But they 
but they still stayed true to their why, which I thought was really good, which was this access of the best information. Um, I'm just wondering how difficult it's going to be for those businesses that don't start off with, that don't stick to that why, or, you know, is it going to be more difficult to stick to that that piece if they actually go out to the market and want to become more customer-centric but it's so opposed to what they're doing? Will we see just, will we just see, you know, lots of businesses hit the wall? Is this going to be, you know, a make or break for some businesses, this revolution of, you know, customer centricity? I think I do think that um, that the advantage for a, for a, a new business, whether a small startup or, or, or even if they're starting up at a bit of scale, um, it's an advantage for them to understand what is authentic about our brand and our behaviour, and let's get that nailed at the beginning so that we have a fighting chance of staying true to that. So that when a new opportunity comes along, we can ask ourselves the question: Does that fit with our brand values, or doesn't? At least yeah. we've got some brand values to judge that. Yeah. Um, and that will help us be consistent with what we're trying to do mm. rather than they just opportunistically think, oh, well, that's a good opportunity to grab some market share when actually it may not be the, the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are some, some good examples out there and the, probably the banking sector is the best example. Uh, telecoms is another example where... Um, they have some tremendous access, a unique privileged access to, to data about us as individuals and it's a degree to how much are they going to use that data in our interests versus their interests. Uh, so a bank, for example, can see that you have gone overdrawn in your current account but they can also see that you have $10,000 in your savings account. So a bank that's working in my interest would say to me, hey, I see you've gone overdrawn. I'm sure you don't want to pay charges. Would you like me to move some money out of your savings account temporarily so you can avoid some banking charges? Mm. Now, they have the insight, the data to do that at scale. Whether they're prepared to do that for me, if they are going out with a brand that says you're working in the customer's interests or some strap line to that effect, yeah. then that's the right thing for them to do. Now, the shareholders may take a different view because it might impact profit. Mm. Uh, so they need to make some decisions about, well, what kind of bank are we? How are we going to set ourselves up with our relationship with our customers? And telecoms is the same. Mm. You're going over your data plan. They can do things about it or they cannot. And my experience here in Europe is that the telecom companies have been had to been dragged kicking and screaming mm. to place, for example... If you go abroad and you're using your mobile phone, you can run up a bill of hundreds of pounds very quickly. And it's only really been through EU legislation that has forced them to put a cap and say, actually, once you get to 10 pounds a day, you can't be charged anymore. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Um, but they didn't voluntarily do that because they don't really have the customer mm. mindset. Mm. So I think there is a, there are an opportunity for new businesses to set up at the beginning and say, all right, how are we going to set this up? Are we going to set it up on a very much a commercial basis and be upfront about that? And maybe the, 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 there's some customer benefit in the way that EasyJet or other cheap airlines are very transparent and say, look, you're not going to get the best experience in the world with us, we guarantee. What you are going to get is a really cheap entry price. If you need a bit more bells and whistles, 
maybe you want to go to another airline. Mm. Uh, that's up to you, but at least they're upfront about it. Mm. Um, whereas, as I say, some other industries are not. So I think the not everybody has to a customer experience core that doesn't necessarily fit every brand. I, I, I wouldn't say that the, the the differential for their business, if they're going to have a USP, it always has to be customer experience because that rules out the the low cost low cost players. Mm. But I think that the the the, the consistent thing that everyone should be is authenticity about their brand. Mm. And, and to say, if, it, if it's not going to be a great experience, it may be just a functional experience, then position that as that's why we're in the business, to give people a choice. And you'll probably get a price advantage if you do that. And we may become a mix. And you may end up trusting us more, even though we don't do the sort of Rolls-Royce customer service. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't want to pretend that just because I'm in the in the business of customer experience, therefore every business needs to mm-hmm. make that their shining light. I think the reality of the world is there's there's too much choice, and that's a good thing in the in the world. To, to, so there's a place to play, but if you choose not to play in the customer experience area, I think you need to think about growth. Uh, do you think you're going to grow as fast as the people who are going to differentiate on? customer experience because the truth is in a commodity world I can get what I want in more than one place almost everywhere whatever you're selling wherever we're flying someone else is doing that too so if you're if you're not going to compete on customer experience there's a real risk that the people who are are going to be more attractive than you just competing on price or whatever else so I think it my default and what I say to my customers is if you're not going to go on customer experience, do it as a conscious decision. Mm. Don't just be lazy and fall out of the mindset and, 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 and then after the event you say, oh, well, that's not really our focus anyway. And I think that's very true for B&B. Yeah. We, we, we all need to say to our B&B customers, uh, it's a revolution in the B2C world. If you don't want to get involved, do it consciously mm. and be aware of the consequences because even if your customer is a business customer, uh, he's also a mother, father, lives in the consumer world, and is being influenced by the kind of service that they get from consumer brands as opposed to business brands. So it's just a warning light, which usually wakes them up to the fact that maybe I need to look at this after all. Well, it's interesting. I like how you stay, be conscious about it and... Um, and you know, the other thing is prove it. You know, I think a lot of people tout this is their value set, but it's sort of lip service. And I think if you can prove it, it's 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 kind of interesting. I just have one final question for you, and that was really around um, the employees and how they can contribute to that research or that customer experience. Um, just your thoughts on on that, because I. I in this article that you've got, you know, it's also, you know, that the employees can actually, you know, put some of their intuition or some of their insight forward and just how companies could use that to also help create this culture of that doesn't just start and end with, um, you know, the customer service people, that it is something that is um, that everyone's empowered to contribute to and also put input into. Yeah, that's and, and and here I'm going to say that I think the service design people do a good job here. 
Um, because when they, if they're working on a service design for what's the best way to, you know, how do we, how do we handle complaints coming into the contact center, the call center for an issue on, for a mobile phone company or something, the service design people will look at all aspects of a business when that call comes in. So, okay, there's the people who answer the phone and they're the people that traditionally are invited to co-create some kind of improvement, solution, whatever, and that makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're a frontline service person talking to a customer, you're almost certainly using a system to help you. So we need systems guys, and we can save the systems guys. You are the, you are the, the technology that drives the capability of our frontline people have a fighting chance of knowing what this customer rang in about last time. So without you, you give the frontline guy virtually no chance of giving quality um, performance. Mm. You can, and then you can go further back and you can look at other areas and you can say to, uh, you can say to the purchasing department or you can even say to the, the people who, who buy furniture or we do the training for staff or you can really go through the organization and say say from a supporting role what are you doing to support the frontline people or the people who support the frontline people so who are the procurement people who are supporting the IT guys you know it doesn't it doesn't it's not actually that hard to see it's a kind of web mm. and even though there are some strands that are more obvious the strength of the web is the whole web mm. That's what makes a spider's web work. If you just chop one part of the, the whole thing, really doesn't have any strength anymore. And, and, and when, I think when I do work, and I'm, I'm just actually promoting a, an employee engagement workshop to people this month, and when I, what I will say to them in, in my talk is that, that is the, that's the mindset you have to do. If you just do it by silo, if you just talk to the customer service teams, or you just talk to the sales teams in the stores, that's great for that particular interaction, mm-hmm. but don't, don't be so kind of naive as to think that they just magically turn it on mm-hmm. for the customers. In the same way that, you know, look at, you go to a theater performance, if you don't have the lighting totally in sync with the players on the stage, the thing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. In fact, it can be quite embarrassing. <laughs> so the, the lighting guys, the guys who rig the sound, they're not the heroes of the story. But believe me, if they don't get it right, if the guys that maintain your airplane don't maintain your airplane, no matter how good the pilot is, <laughs> you give yourself a hard time. So, so that's I think you need some examples to bring that to life. Hello, we have a little visitor coming in. Oh, it'll be my son. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just wrap up. Hello. With, uh, say hi. Hi. Um, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that you're reading at the moment that you think would be good and useful? Um, in this uh, area, um, I let me email you on that. There's a few things okay. I've got. Um, I'll email you on, on that and uh, give you some ideas. Great. Um, well, I, I really appreciate your time, and it's it's just been fantastic chatting to you and getting to know what you do. And um, yeah, it's a pleasure. It's- hey, thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this podcast. For more great marketing tips, go to Dan's blog at www.daniellemcginnis.com 
and sign up for her marketing tips or visit her website at www.mcginnismarketing.com.au. Catch you next time.